Good evening, everyone. My name is Sanusha, and I am the co-lead from Leading Masterclass. Here with me is my co-lead as well, Azilia. And we would like to thank all of you for investing your time with us to tune in on this Coffee Chat series to discuss uh, women in STEM. Again, I would like to thank all our amazing panelists here today for taking their time off and to basically talk to us about the women in STEM field. You know, statistics show that women make up only 28% of the workforce in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, also known as STEM. And men vastly outnumber these women, especially in these uh, STEM fields. Entrenched uh, gender stereotypes and gender biasness, you know, has sort of prevented young girls and women to stay away from pursuing these uh, STEM field careers. And here to shed some light on these conversations, Azilia and I will be co-moderating the session entitled Breaking the STEM Barriers with our fantastic line of panelists. We are joined today by our leading women in STEM, Serena Shukri, Vani Mahadevan, and Associate Professor Dr. Oon Chun In, where they'll discuss their experiences and share with us the journey and the challenges they had to overcome at work also how they can empower women to re-enter the STEM workforce especially. So, you know, I would really love to take this time for, to open up to all our panelists, perhaps if for the sake of the audience members, if you would like to introduce yourself. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for the invitation to be on the panel. I am Chung. Um, I'm a molecular oncologist at the University of Science Malaysia. My job scope, I try to find new treatments for cancer. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Serena, would you like to? Good afternoon, everybody. It's so, I'm so delighted to be with everyone today. Uh, so my name is Serena Shukri. Um, I'm known by many things. Some of you may know me as the former CEO of Malaysia Digital Economy Corporation or MDAC. I just finished my stint there. I just enjoyed my first 11 days as a non-civil you know, servant. And uh, I must say, I'm now able to use many of the hashtags that was once forbidden for me to use. Um, <laughs> so, so it's nice to, to be back uh, outside in the private sector. Uh, so a little bit of my background, um, I actually spent the bulk of my career uh, overseas. And so I was just reflecting this morning, 20 years ago, I made a decision to move to New York City. Um, I was back in Malaysia, uh, uh, but decided, you know, I'm going to break my bond and move to New York City to be an investment banker. And so I did that 20 years ago. And as luck may have it, um, uh, I came back to Malaysia January 2019, and here I am. So I'm excited to be with all of you today. Thank you so much for sharing. All right. Bunny, would you like to introduce yourself? Bunny, you're on mute. I'm sorry. You're mute, I think. Yeah. Hi, good evening, everyone, okay. on this lovely Saturday, Saturday afternoon, evening, on this beautiful weather. Uh, I'm Bunny. I wear many different hats through, and I've worn many different hats through my life. I've been an account, I started my journey as an accountant with my student Ernst Young, had ran my business, ran my own consulting business for a few years, sold that, and then uh, you know, was involved in a lot of uh, corporate social responsibility projects with private sector and all that in a company called Warisan Global. 
And then after that, I moved on to become a director in Startup Malaysia. Then I gave, took a complete career break for seven years and packed up and moved off to Australia to be with my kids for seven years while they went through high school. And then after that, I came back about four years ago. Once they said they're ready to go to university, they didn't want me anymore. I came back, uh, still director of Startup Malaysia, handling a few different pro special projects uh, with the Asia Foundation and Google. Um, and two years ago, I started this company called Techsprint, which is, I believe, is Malaysia's first women-only coding school dedicated. Um, I believe there have been uh, many different uh, women-only, you know, initiatives or NGOs or societies yeah. to promote uh, women in tech. But we believe we are the first one that's a dedicated company that has been set up to promote the entry of women into tech, transition of women into tech. And one of the key projects that we're very proud of is our not-for-profit initiative called Rebound, which we started last year in the middle of the pandemic with uh, the support of the Asia Foundation. And it's a career comeback program or career kickoff program for women aged between 21 to 50 to transition into tech careers, become more aware of tech or just adopt more tech in their lives or businesses. So that's where I am today. Thank that's you. Great. That's great. Thank you all for sharing. Thank you, Serena, Vani, and Dr. Odin. Okay. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing, everyone. And we'd like to, again, thank you for taking time off your day to be here. All right. So let's just jump straight into the questions. It's a general question. Anyone can take this question. Um, we'd like to ask, how were you encouraged to get into STEM? Like, was there a moment in school where you realized that you were happiest studying science and math? I can't say one for myself because I'm not in STEM, but <laughs> anybody can take the question. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll take that one. So um, I'll, I'll start. So um, I went to school here in KL, in, in, in Damansara Jaya, actually. Um, and so back then, uh, they, they were you know, art streams and science streams. And, and so yeah. you could just get yeah. into these classes. And so I happened to fall into the science stream. And so, so which meant that you took your core classes and then you took physics, uh, chemistry and biology. Um, and, and so that's how, um, you know, the, the whole STEM thing came about. But, but for me, I always knew that I wanted to study business, uh, but back then, you know, the, the stigma was always, hey, uh, Serena, you're really smart, so you need to study engineering. And, and so you must go overseas and study engineering and, um, and instead of business. And so what I did instead was I found the, this program at University of Pennsylvania that was actually a dual degree program. Uh, uh -huh. Then I ended up, I studied science uh, and engineering and business. So there you go, fulfill the, the, the dutiful, uh, you know, Malaysian and study science, uh, yeah. but at the same time study, study business, which is actually very, very helpful because at the end of the day, one of the core things that science teaches you, not only is it interesting and fascinating, but it's problem solving. So it's a lot of thinking and problem solving that's, that, that, that's required. So that's how I came about into, into studying science and technology. Sorry, it's just ironic that like they have this perception that you have to be smart for you to go into the STEM field. So that was yeah. a perception back then, like how many years ago? Um, many, many yeah. years ago. 
Thank you so much for sharing that, Serena. That's very insightful. Dr. Um, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, you know, with the perception of being smart and going to the science stream, unfortunately, this perception perception still exists today because I do a lot of outreach programs uh, for the underprivileged kids. I visit the care homes, the orphanage, and so often I hear the kids telling me, you know, the, the, the science is for smart, you know, I'm not smart enough. I want to be a policeman. I want to be someone else. So I, I, I don't really know where this, this, this came from, you know, that, that science is for the smart. But for me, um, my dad was a scientist himself. So I explored the ground of uh, USM at a very young age. But, you know, interestingly, I also had several other interests. I wanted to be a fashion designer at some point. Um, but my mom told me that, you know, if you want to be a fashion designer, you have to make it really big. You know, otherwise, there's really no point. And then so I, I just put that aside. And then at some point, I wanted to be a medical doctor. And, you know, growing up in an Asian family, um, we're very much... Uh, in tune with what our family members want us to be. And for me, I was very close to my mom. So when she told me that, you know, if you decide to be a medical doctor, you might actually end up getting married to the hospital and you would not even have the time to spend with the family. So in the end, I just thought, okay, you know, I'm interested in biology. Oh, I'm interested in cancer research. I can just do research, you know, it's flexible. Mm -hmm. That's really great that you've shared that actually. I think sometimes, you know, there is what the community's sort of view, mm -hmm. but then it's sort of your own personal obligation that you would want to fulfill. Yeah. And I do believe that's where the passion stems from. That's right. Yeah. What about Bonnie? Let's hear it from Bonnie. <laughs> I think I think to me the the I, I'm a bit like Serena. I was always in the science stream and always expected. But the very interesting thing was my father, he was a migrant from India. He was so, you know, he was first generation. He moved here when he was, you know, when he was 18 years old and to build up, you know, to, to make a difference in his family. But yeah. interestingly, he was always very, very um, adamant that we all, that, you know, my sister and I, uh, that we do well in school, that education, you know, he always saw education as a life changer and uh, he always encouraged us to pursue whatever that we wanted to pursue so my sister ended up pursuing uh, medicine and became a doctor and I ended up in the science stream and then I was doing some you know uh, programming and stuff while waiting to decide what I wanted to do for, for college and stuff and then I decided to go into accounting but it was you know it was always an, an interest and again, like Serena, the perception was if you're at, at that time, and I think even to today, if, if you're smart, you end up in the science stream. I think the, the whole liberal arts concept is something that is, you know, very slowly creeping in. But the idea is that if you wanted to do well in life, yes. you need to have science and mathematics. But the interesting thing is not, I do also don't see many women pursuing that once they get past the high school. Like once they get past yeah. high school, or even if they go to university and do, do a degree in that, but very often later in life, they often change their careers into something else and that perhaps is no longer related to STEM. So that might be, that might have something to do with what Dr. Un mentioned about, you know, how her, her mother said that you don't want to be married to the hospital. So it might have something to do with that. So I think while family support is very important, 
But I think what also happens along the way is that sometimes I think women tend to make um, choices of, you know, we sort of sometimes forced to make choices or sometimes it's just directed towards making choices that take us away from the STEM path way. That's, yeah. that's, my, that's my take on that matter. Mm -hmm. so, you know, that's can it. I, yeah. Can I just, Go ahead, Serena. Um, sure. so, so what we all shared just now was, you know, the early days. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's this notion that if you study, you know, you can only, if you didn't study STEM, you know, in school, in high school, university, then, then that's the end for you. So, so for me, I actually studied both, but my career was actually focused on the finance side. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, was an investment banker. Uh, and then after that, I, I, I um, uh, took on a, a corporate role. So I was running strategy um, um, and, and operations, basically. And that's how I got reconnected with technology again. And so as mm -hmm. part of our the strategy work that I was doing, two things. So number one, uh, the bank that I was at, we were trying to figure out okay, what does the bank of the future actually look like? How does digital come in? How does technology come in? Um, how do we even bank all these, these, these startups? And so, so through that work, I got reconnected to, to the tech industry again. Uh, and then I decided actually to do something, um, uh, you know, just to challenge myself. I thought, well, strategy is just coming up with the plans, you know, where the, the real um, exercise is, is when you're actually in one of the, the operational roles. So I took on a role um, to be the COO of one of the units. And that actually had me, forced me to get into technology even more because now I was the one that was executing a lot of the digital transformation that I had just said you need to do. And so that's when a lot of the reconnecting with technology and really reskilling um, had to happen. So I suddenly had to run a data team. And when I started, you know, I'll confess, I actually had to Google, actually was the difference between data science and data engineering. Huh? Um, uh, and, and, but yeah. had to relearn um, all of that. And so that's basically what's happening today. So many of the roles that we're in, uh, technology is, is you're, there's not, the, the name of the game now is figuring out how to adopt technology. And so in any role that you're in, you're gonna need to start to learn, what does this all mean? What does data, data literacy actually mean? How do you actually leverage data to run do your, your work? How do you automate? How do you do digital? How do you innovate? And so it's all part and parcel of the role. So, so through that, that's how I started to reconnect with the, the technology side um, of things again. That's excellent sharing, you know, to be, I completely echo what you say, Serena, because even personally, right, though I am a marketing graduate and a communications graduate, I did a double degree in communications and marketing, coming into the tech world, there were certain expectations, you know, you've got to learn the jargons and these are skills that are very new to you. But exactly what you say was spot on. It's about the part and parcels. You sort of, it is the journey that actually has the full reward because that's where you sort of think that, hey, we're not going to survive. We're going to thrive here. So I completely agree with all three of you. And, you know, one of the common things that you guys mentioned as well were early exposure. And I think that was some, that is a very good point to make, which brings us, if I may, to the next question. Um, to what extent do you think early exposure to STEM fields 
is important in getting women interested and involved? Yeah, so I, I personally think it's as early as preschool because at no time in life is curiosity more powerful than in early childhood, right? Humans, we seek novelty in safe and family settings and, you know, kids, they feel safe with us at home and they feel safe with the teachers in school. So as parents, I'm sure many of us have kids asking us the craziest thing, you know, you can ever think of, you know, for example, my toddler would ask me, why does Spider-Man scale the wall and she cannot, you know, and then when we took a stroll in the park, she would ask me, why does the sunflower look down? So simple things like that. These are the things that you probably would not even have thought about. Mm -hmm. um, right. So I also organize science outreach activities, as I've previously mentioned. And what I observed, to be honest, I think they are really, really creative at that age. You know, I have actually learned to see things from the perspectives. For example, I gave them glow in the dark sticks and dry eyes to teach them light without heat. What they ended up doing, they created crowns, juries, you know, swords uh, with the items and with the dry eyes, finally they set the scene for a play or a drama. <laughs> <laughs> you can see their curiosity growing from there. Right? <laughs> Yeah, fantastic. Okay. Um, again, Dr. Un, thank you so much for sharing that. And you also shared with us a self-reflective essay about going into your the field that you are in now, about how you found it challenging to begin with. So on that note, I would like to know, there's this perception that people still tend to associate the STEM disciplines with men and hold negative opinions of women in masculine careers. And having said that, being a woman in STEM is especially challenging. So how does one hold and retain one's own individuality and perspective without wagering their job security? You know what, if that's actually one lesson that I learned in life, I yeah. think it's learning how to say no and to speak one's mind politely. Because I've really learned to do that when I went overseas. You know, I was very meek before I went overseas. You know, there is this social stigma that still exists in many developing countries, I bet. You know, women have been assigned an inferior status to men for a long time. And society yeah. expects a woman to behave a certain way, you know, graceful, polite, and obedient. And we have been taught since young not to answer back or disagree with the adults, right? Um, we are supposed to be gentle or perhaps submissive. You know, I see that it still happens here. Uh, we say yes without meaning it, uh, just because we're so afraid to offend anyone. And then we cannot deliver or live up to the expectations. And the cycle continues. I mm. find this rather unhealthy and unproductive. I actually had a hard lesson to learn when I was overseas because I was working with the French. You know, they are very direct. <laughs> and specifically, they told me, you know, I see that you don't mean it. So don't nod your head when you actually don't want to do it so they can see that. So I've actually learned it the hard way. Mm. But the irony is, although for the past two decades, women have outpaced men in completing the higher education, right? Uh, yeah. Back in 2017, for example, the Ministry of Higher Education in Malaysia has reported that the unemployment rate uh, among female postgraduates is actually higher than for the males. And those in the childbearing age often have difficult decisions to make. Um, there's this um, gender initiative done by the OECD back in 2017. They stated that 
mothers are 23% less likely to be employed than fathers. And I personally think that there are two big issues that women face here. First of all, is a work-life balance. And second of all, is a hiring bias. You know, think about what may potentially go through a hiring manager's mind when interviewing a woman of childbearing age versus a man. You know, she'll be out for a few months for sure. And she needs to be replaced. So are you willing to train and retrain? And secondly, she won't be able to work late hours or she won't be able to travel as much. So who would you actually choose? Would this actually be an unconscious bias or a conscious decision? Mm-hmm. Yeah, these challenges are real. Like, and, and I would think that what we're talking about here, I don't think it's just a STEM thing. I think the, the, the nice thing about STEM actually is the fact that the work product at the end of the day is very um, tangible, you know, because it's science, it's numbers, it's problem solving. So at the end of the day, the, the opportunity does exist. Uh, when you compare the work, the it would be comparable. But what happens really is it's the advocacy. And, and most of the time, I want to say sometimes, um, you know, we women in particular, um, there's this cultural thing, especially Asian women. So so you're 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 when growing up, you were taught to to you know exactly what um, um, doctor said earlier. Um, uh, to not really speak up. And so you really have to unlearn that and really teach yourself to, to, to advocate. And I think like, you know, you know, since this is lean in, I, I think, you know, Sheryl Sandberg's book was actually quite pronounced to profound to say, no, 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 have that voice, have that seat at the table, because usually we, we wouldn't. And then I remember um, uh, when the book first came out, I was actually around childbearing age too. And I realized, wait a minute, all those things actually I do. You know, I'm, I'm always like the, the, the mom of the group, you know, I let mm-hmm. other people, and especially coming from Malaysia, right? Like, so and then I would sit. But, but it's a stark reminder that in the workforce in particular, you really, really, really have to advocate for, for yourself. You have to have that voice um, and then in, in STEM, just because the numbers are, are, are less, um, the, the, the supporting system around you, i.e. finding other women as well, um, yeah. I think that's very helpful. Um, that, that goes a long way too, because sometimes when there's two of you in the room or the magic number apparently is three, um, it actually helps uh, come up with, with, with this voice. But it's really all about self, it's self-advocacy, I, I find. I cannot agree with you more, Serena, and including you, Dr. Un. It's very spot on. Bunny, do you have anything to add? Perhaps on the conventional views, you know, women pursuing these careers? Yeah. I think, you know, I, you know going back to what uh, Serena and Dr. Un mentioned about, yeah. you know, having that advocacy and having that support network. I think sometimes change, you know, Changes in workplaces is definitely looking long overdue for to, to, to be able to support women. And I think sometimes even small businesses can actually do that because, you know, my recent background, a lot of it has been in small businesses, uh, you know, uh, owner operated businesses. And in that, you know, like for, for example, we used to have a graphic designer and she was of childbearing age. She, she, she did great work with us. And then she got married. Um, and she had the child after that and she came and told us look I don't want to work 
um, I don't want to work anymore. I need to quit my job. But I love designing. So, so I told her, I said, look, why don't you come and do this for us on a freelance basis? You know, we'll agree on an hourly rate. I trust you. We'll give you all the hardware. You keep it at home. Whenever you're ready to do stuff for us, let us know. We'll send you work. Um, you give it to us within a reasonable turnaround time. And, you know, we do timesheets and we treat it like a gig and, and you do it for us. You know, we love your work. And you know what? We've been doing that for the last two years and it's worked fantastically well for us. Mm-hmm. She's been, you know, she's happy. She's able to look after her son and still be creative and do productive work. Um, we've referred her to some of our clients who have loved our work and loved her work and have asked her to do something uh, for them as well. She's happy. She's able to get work done. So one thing that we found is that um, in some ways, technology has actually enabled women to have that flexibility because yeah. this is one of the few careers where women can work um, you know, on a flexible, the work can be done on a flexible basis. Work can be done remotely. And in fact, if anything, that if anything, the pandemic has taught us is it has actually accelerated that adoption and thinking. We've actually become borderless in that sense because women or anyone for that matter can now look at opportunities anywhere around the world. And employers are also now more open to hiring talent from around the world because it's now become talent. And it's become a talent game now. And women are in a unique position to be able to do that. You know, if you're stuck at home and you, you have children to look after, Take on you can you can take on flexible work, take on projects, take on gigs, and that's what I think you know this has enabled us to do. Mm-hmm. This is applicable whether it's STEM or non-STEM work. Yeah, agreed. No, yeah, I completely agree with you, Vani. And you made a really good point there. You know, when it comes to uh, working mothers, especially, and like how you mentioned in the beginning, you know, having taken a career break, I believe that you understood the challenges involved in making a successful career comeback and hence the design of uh, Rebound, you know, as an initiative to help and support other women in their own journeys. And when we talk about COVID, especially now, you know, and COVID is causing, you know, this pink collar recession, almost a near immediate effect on women's employment, particularly working mothers and women in senior management positions. How are these opportunities like actually, you know, for women to re-enter and transition if they want to into a new career in the tech industry? So on, on one side, yeah, there, there, there are challenges right now. Uh, I think that there's no doubt about it because the, the situation with, with, with childcare and the kids being at home, it's challenging for everybody, not just, um, especially so on, on, on moms, um, but you know, it's equally challenging. So, so unfortunately, that is a, a, um, a phenomenon that's happening right now. But, but when you put that, that aside, um, um, gosh, I lost my train of thought. Uh, okay. No worries. No worries. Take your time. Dr. Uni, if you want oh, to. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, point, the, the point that I was going to say, you know, because yeah. you were talking about opportunities, yeah? Um, yes. And, and Bani, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll add upon this as well. You see, I, I think one of the things that um, um, we tend to do quite a bit is uh, in, in general, like we assign timelines. 
And these timelines are actually artificial timelines when you think about it. You say, you say you must do X, Y, Z by such and such a time. Um, but the reality of it is that, you know, there is no such thing as, you know, a timeline. Everybody's on their, their, their own timeline. So therefore, when you think about um, um, transitioning into STEM, there is opportunities now if you're able to, uh, willing enough to, to do the work to yeah. and, and, and learn because uh, there's no such thing as a real timeline. Um, but, but, but people tend to say, no, I don't want to transition. I, 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 it's too late to learn because I need to have done such and such by such and such a time. And so doing that sets me back. I don't know if there, there's, there is, um, um, that, that shouldn't be the, the way that we approach things. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. That shouldn't be a way that shouldn't be a reason for the setback to happen. Like you shouldn't use that as a reason to not pursue anything you want to do. That's, that's really correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's always better to approach things um, in a way where you can handle the ambiguity more. It's more of like what you, what you can handle versus what you already know. It's always a learning process. So I completely agree with that. I was, I was tossed into something that was completely different to me, uh, completely different to what I did in my undergrad. And um, yeah, it was, it was important to stress on, um, it's not what you know, it's how fast you can keep up with the ambiguity. So I agree with you, Serena. That's actually really true. Bonnie, would you like to add? Yeah, yeah I, think, I think the term I, I like to use is how fast can you reinvent yourself? Exactly. And I think to reinvent exactly. yourself to stay relevant. And yes. this is what I always tell the particip my participants in Rebound. I say, there are many reasons, you know, a lot of them come and say, look, I've been in HR for so many years, I just lost my job, I got retrenched. I've been in sales for so many years and I've lost my job and I got retrenched. And I always tell them, I said, look, this is a great mm -hmm. space to be in. Yes. Because for many different reasons. And one of, you know, and some of the reasons are the low barriers to entry. You can, mm -hmm. you can pick, you know, as you don't need a, to do a four-year uh, degree to mm -hmm. be able to step into tech. You can adopt tech. The thing is, how fast can you shift your mindset? How fast can you wrap your head around skill sets and apply the skills that you have learned in your conventional areas like HR or functional areas like HR mm -hmm. or sales or marketing? How fast can you adopt it into, into this new medium, right? Mm -hmm. Or into this new world. And you can actually learn that. And gives you flexibility, remote work. We, we, we've gone through all of that. And one thing mm -hmm. that I actually realized is a lot of women are given the opportunity. A lot of times it's a case of affordability for them. But mm -hmm. once we cross that barrier of affordability, a lot of them are willing to make that mind shift they are willing to take on the challenge and try and do that but they do need a lot of um, encouragement and motivation and they sort of need to be we find that they need to be mm -hmm. taken on a step-by-step -step basis to give them the confidence many times it's a issue of i don't think i can do it but once we show them we, we make them do a project over three days and say hey deliver a website in three or four days and then they go voila wow i can do this so it's not just the little thing about the website, but it's what it does to their mindset in terms of, see, if I can do this, I can probably learn other things in whatever time frame that 
I have given myself. And I can now apply this in many different areas. And, and that I find, and this is something, is not just restricted to the 21 to 50 year olds. Because yeah. we, we started Rebound for 21 to 50 year olds, but I got called by a group of women who are more, who community of women over 50. And they told oh, me, okay. we don't want to be, we want to be economically independent. We don't want to mm -hmm. be dependent on our children. We need to learn this new world. Why can't we come to your courses? You said, yeah, okay, come. If you're willing to learn, we're willing to teach. So I think it's, again, it's, it's, it's I, I find it's very much, it's not so much the skill or the science, it's the mindset mm -hmm. and the willingness to reinvent yourself. And I think, um, and, and, and I see the important because I've had to reinvent myself so many times from my days as a, qualified chartered accountant to today to where I am, where I don't look at a balance sheet unless it's something for me to sign. <laughs> I think, I think it's, that, it's that whole, you know, are you willing to jump in and do it? I mean, like how Serena said about how she had to take on an operational role and, yeah. and manage people. And I think women are very natural at this. Hey, look, we have to bring up kids. There's no manual for that. Exactly. <laughs> That is, that is the way, that is awesome when you just said. <laughs> we, we're great at reinventing. Why not, why not we just apply that to our professional lives as well? We are far more, we are more capable in multitasking and doing things than we give ourselves credit for. And that's what, that's what I, I find. Yeah. Mm. It's very inspiring of you to shed a light in that because it's true <laughs> and I think more women need to hear it. Dr. Un, do you have anything to add? Well, I definitely think that reinventing oneself is very important. Um, but from the perspective of a, of, of a scientist, um, for me, you know, during the pandemic, research has come to a complete halt. You know, we had to stop working on the living cells. You know, our cultures mm -hmm. perished. Animals had to be culled. And we had to adapt ourselves to these new changes. You know, I mean, I'm a government servant, so I did not lose my job. But you know what happens when the experiments stop? What can we do? You know, and we have students running on projects and they also may suffer from mental health issues, right? I mean, they are not able to complete the studies on time. And, you know, what do we think about mental health issues here? You know, in Asia, judgment and discrimination, you know, they are often the reasons why many choose to suffer in silence. And for me, it was a hard time at that time because on one hand, I have the deadline of the grants coming up and I have to, you know, churn out those papers and, and the results for the experiments. But on the other hand, I'm dealing with people you know, who are suffering mm -hmm. mentally, how much do I push, you know, how much can we adapt, you yeah. know, so, so I think, I think at, at, at this uh, difficult time, it's, it's just difficult, you know, which one, how, how do you go about this, you know, for some of us, living the new normal may mean having to survive with less or no financial income, you know, mm -hmm. their families have lost income, and then that throw them into depression. How do you tell them, oh, you know, you have to get out of that, you know, and continue doing what you do is just very easy to say, because I myself had episodes of anxiety attacks last year, to be honest, mm -hmm. I felt like I have lost control of many things at that 
time, it was also new to me. You know, I was trying to juggle between my my kids, my toddlers, the baby, and working from home, you know, with all the crying in the background and the kids pulling my legs in two different directions, wanting attention. And then on the other hand, I have got problems, research and everything has stopped, you know. But I was very fortunate because mine was very short-lived, okay? But I can't help but think about how about those who are not able to get past that negative sparring thoughts that haunted haunt them for so long because at the time I felt that my world was so dark. It, it was like I had been introduced into the world of those who are depressed, you know, for the first time experiencing it myself. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I think since then I have advocated for kindness in leadership and I've started writing articles about um, my experience. Mm-hmm. And I think this calamity has provoked timely reflections on what it actually means to practice kindness. You know, at this time, kindness goes a long way and kindness is never wasted. It always makes a difference. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Thank you so much for, you know, entrusting us with your stories. You know, even though sharing them likely meant, you know, revisiting painful memories, but, you know, this experience is really valuable. It's really, really thankful for it. Okay. Now, seeing that um, all of you have shared your personal experiences, especially with um, children and raising them and, you know, in the new norm and stuff like that. And we we want to also know, acknowledging that we still have a long way to go towards bridging the gender gap. And with the belief that education starts in the household, what are the things that you do or have done that you hope will prepare your children to be successful? So, you know, when I think about STEM, at the end of the day, STEM really is about um, problem solving at the core of it. And and so one of the things that I like to, I've been telling my kids, you know, is that every problem has a solution. And, and so I, I'm trying my best to encourage that whole identifying what the problem is and then just try and solve it. Because I think like this whole notion of problem solving is what we need to get, um, yeah. um, you know, the, the, the kids more accustomed to, to do. Because um, yeah. the future, when you think about jobs, the future, even jobs currently, it's all about problem solving at the end of the day. And so encouraging that, that spirit of, yeah, it's a problem, but we can solve it. And there's different ways. I mean, every problem has a solution is what we, we try and advocate in our household. That's fantastic. That's very good. That's what mom, my mom does. But it takes me a while to solve the problem. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's a muscle that you can exercise, you know, so starting it young. Yeah. Basically, it's like, it's like creating your biceps, right? You got to just work on it young. I <laughs> keep doing it. So you train your you train yourself to do that. Um, what about Bunny? What about you and your kids? Well, I had I have a, a, a pair of twins, a boy girl twin, and I have a younger son soon after. And the okay. boy is going to be twenty one on Tuesday, and the twins are twenty two plus already. So my daughter can you know. I always treated them, I think, you know, with my father's upbringing, I tended to bring, I, I was, I was always been a firm, I've always been a firm believer in, okay, everybody jumps in and does, does things together. And they were, because they were so close in age, they were just a play group in themselves. Uh-huh. So they basically, so my daughter was very used to doing things with her brothers. 
So when the funny thing was when we moved to Australia, so the boys went to an all boys school and my daughter went to an all girls school. Okay. And suddenly she found herself surrounded by girls and and then, you know, she she did okay, but she still missed doing things with with her brothers and boys and then when she reached a stage like towards year 9 10 she suddenly realized that the boys were able to do things like engineering and design and stuff yeah. whereas and computer science whereas her school didn't offer that that as a subject at all and she started getting really miserable about it you know and this was the premier girls school and they didn't have yeah. a, you know and she said, you know, mom, just get me out of here. She said, I'm, I'm done with this. So we had to actually move her out into a, into, obviously she couldn't go to the all boys school. So we had to move her into a co-ed school. <laughs> yeah. And she got to do, she got to do her computer science. But, but this is the thing. I think from an early, early age, we just encouraged them to have that. I think there was a lot of equality. There was a lot of exposure to, to problem solving. I think like Serena said, it was about solving things, solving things, thinking through things, logical thinking. And today she's she's very happy where she is. She's just in a very happy space. She's actually already working. Among all, you know, among the three kids, she's the only one who's graduated, got, got a job even before she graduated. And she's doing very well. And she's gone on to wanting to do something in management. And she, she's Fantastic. off on a, on a trajectory while the boys are still, you know, That's great. Thank you so much for sharing, Wani. It's really insightful. Something for everybody in the call to take note for the future or somebody from the present. And actually, Dr. Un, you, you yourself have two very young kids, four yep. under four, I think. <laughs> two kids under four, right? Yes. Yes. So I think I'm going to say this uh, from <laughs> a pers the perspective of someone who has been overseas and then coming back again into the system, I think it's important not to put any labels on the kids. And this is extended to the schools, the universities, and the workplace, right? Mm -hmm. Never talk down to people just because we can, right? Because labeling affects the way children see themselves and the way adults label a child can actually have a lasting negative impact on how the child thinks of him or herself, mm -hmm. right? When a child is labeled, it will become a part of his or her identity. They can grow up, they change and develop, but the labels, they tend to stick. And all of us have dignity and self-esteem. For those who have been labeled, um, imagine at some point in their lives, you know, these negative comments can undermine their self-esteem and affect the performance at work, right? So once a limiting belief is triggered, their outlook in life totally transforms. They view everything through a new filter. So mm -hmm. I tell my daughter, you know, that she's strong. She can do whatever she puts her mind to. You know, we have to be supportive and appreciative as parents and also as leaders. Um, you'd be surprised um, what people can actually deliver when you empower and believe in them. And this should actually start from home. I really see this 
um, happening at the workplace. And I see how I actually managed to turn things around, you know, when I actually practice, um, you know, appreciating people, telling them, hey, well done, you know, instead of focusing on all the negative things, you know. So I think this is what uh, we can do as parents, you know, to be supportive and positive. That's great. That's great. I think the one thing to remember is that empathy is -hmm. the key word, you know, especially if you're a leader, right? With, if you lead with empathy, it's sort of like feeding into confidence to your yeah. team. Yes, Mani. And I, sorry, I just wanted to sure. add to that. And I think, and I think the, other, the other important thing is to give them the room to fail. Give them the room and space to fail. Mm-hmm. To try something, the courage to try something, fail at it, pick themselves up again, and move forward and try again. Yeah. I think the, you know, because... When, if you cut them off, if they fail at something, I think then they, the, the, the thing is not the failure, but the willingness to try again. Mm-hmm. And once you take that away, the confidence starts suffering. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that, that's, that's something very important to nurture through the, through the growing years. And I think it's always important to, as a parent, I think, that's something that's always important to, that the children know that you are behind them. Uh, I mean, yes, you can guide them, be a bit of a co-pilot. I mean, if they want to jump off a cliff, you know, then you know, you've got to <laughs> consent to them. But I think within reason, I think we can, we, sometimes it may be very scary for us, for us, for ourselves, but how are they going to cope? Uh, a, a simple example, my, when my daughter, uh, went into university within six months she said I want to take on part-time work and it was a bit you know coming I think coming from an Asian background you tend sort of tend to think no you need to focus on your uni I don't think you should be doing this but she said you know what I, I want the exposure I want to do work and the work wasn't necessarily related to her studies but she said she wanted to do it and she said I, I want to do it I want to be in control of you know, I want to have some control. I want to earn my own money. I don't want to be dependent on y'all for everything. Mm-hmm. And you know what? The part-time work that she did was what enabled her to get a full-time job. The experience that she got from it enabled her to get a full-time job six months before she graduated in the middle of a pandemic. She, she, was, she was offered a full-time job. You know, so sometimes it's a scary thing to let them do something but the payoff is something that I think we just sometimes just got to let go a little and see what happens and be there to catch them if, if things start falling apart mm-hmm. as well. That's yeah. great advice. Really great yeah. advice. It's something for us to even take into consideration and in fact lead with it, you know, because, mm-hmm. I mean, there is no guidelines, but it's these kind of inputs that we get you know, that is sort of setting the trajectory in the right path. So thank you very much for sharing that. Thank you very much, Sunny, for that one. All right, so because we're pressed for time, we only have a few minutes left. Um, Let's move straight into the questions. Some questions, some really interesting questions in here. So I'm going to try to take two questions and merge them into one. So the first question, open to anyone. Um, My supervisor recently offered me to pursue PhD with Grant. I feel super excited, but also intimidated. How do I overcome imposter syndrome? I suppose this question was in, inspired by the conversations that we've had so far about, you know, like 
being in a male dominant field and then telling you that you're not good enough and you can't pursue this thing. So that's question number one. And question number two, um, I'm gonna shorten it up. I aspire to be someone who can encourage more women to be in a male dominated industry. How would you suggest or recommend the first step to take in order to prepare the right environment for women to prosper, especially when most women and female fresh grads can easily get intimidated when they have to work with men? And yeah, those are the two questions. Anybody would, can take that? Would like to start? Well, I, I can get started. I, I actually have sure. a story here. Um, I can very much relate to question number one because when okay. I was offered to do a direct PhD, and I didn't yeah. have a master's degree and I got offered to go to the UK. And it was very yep. funny, you know, you, you actually go for an interview for a scholarship and then, you know, you, you, I tried to tell the panel, I want to do it locally. I didn't want to go overseas just because I didn't have the confidence that I would be able to do well overseas. And, yep. and finally, when they offered me the scholarship, they said, you have to go to the UK. And you know what I did? I looked for the most bottom number 200 university in the ranking. And I straight away, I wrote to the supervisor um, in that university. I said, hey, I'm interested to do my PhD. Obviously, I didn't tell her, you know, why. And uh, she was very keen to take uh, me, you know, under her, uh, her wing. But the thing is, she looked at my CV and she said, you know what? your CV is actually good enough for you to try to apply to Cambridge or Oxford. And I was like, no, I'm very sure I didn't want to go to Oxford or Cambridge. I mean, you know, I've heard of people dropping out or committing suicide you know, just because, you know, the pressure was just so intense. And I was so adamant uh, to sticking to her. But I think for a week after I actually slept on it and I thought about it, hey, you know, I was actually given a scholarship. How can I not try? I should at least try to, to apply to Cambridge and, and Oxford and see what I, I, I could get, you know, from them. And I actually got positive <laughs> responses from Oxford and then that my story just went on from there. You know, I went to Oxford, but I also did not have the confidence because I was in the same research group as those, uh, you know, really smart research, um, what was that called? Road Scholars, you know, Road Scholars, they're really brilliant. And, and me, I, I came from Malaysia, you know, my, I don't have that kind of experience and many of them have been exposed to, you know, there were so many of these technologies that I have not even heard of. So I had to study Wikipedia. What, what does this mean? What is this? You know, and I felt that I was at a disadvantage, but actually it's not because I realized that it was all, you know, through all this grilling and all this exposure in Oxford, I am actually who I am today back in Malaysia, you know, it actually taught me a lot of things. So self-confidence is one thing, but I think we have to overcome that because we think too lowly of ourselves. Also because maybe in our society, in our system, we are not... Yeah being complimented enough we are often told that we're not good enough that's why yeah mm -hmm. i agree with you on that i so think sometimes that is it happens often yeah. go ahead Serena. Well, i was going to offer a, a a tip um because you know i think imposter syndrome everybody actually has imposter syndrome sometimes you hear about all the most successful people uh, and then you read in their biographies and whatnot, they also touch on imposter syndrome. So, so it's quite normal. First and foremost, recognize that, that you're not alone in, in, in that. But here's the thing. So, so 
Dr. Nguyen was saying just now, there is a sense that we all think that we're not good enough. Yeah. And the reality, of, and, and sometimes we feel that way because we look at the, the last thing that we've done and then we compare that into the thing that we're trying to do. So of course, when you compare the last thing that you've done, the thing that you're going to do, you've never done it before. So of course, it's not going to be, you know, it doesn't sound as cool or, or, or interesting. But here's the thing. What I've learned over the years is that you are actually made of all the experiences that you've had to that date. I remember, um, um, you know, after JP Morgan, I actually decided, you know what, you know, there's this whole saying, you, um, uh, you know, you got to disrupt before you dis you're disrupted. And then also I was thinking, you know, technology, you know, I'm not going to learn how to be an innovator if I'm just stuck in a bank. So I'm going to go leave and do that and, and try something else. But when I left, I actually did feel the sense of, of, um, of, you know, I wasn't good enough because when I, I was comparing to, like I, was, I was actually at one point interested in, you know, join, you know, uh, joining, uh, taking on some innovate, innovation type role. And I thought, uh, no, I haven't done anything. You know, what have I done? But what I was doing to myself was just comparing literally the last year, the last two years of the career and saying, of course, I've never done all those things because I'm only looking at the last role, the last job, the last project, my last review. I mean, in corporate also, you're te you tend to always think about just your last review sometimes. But take yeah. a step back and remember how, what you've done to get to where you are, you've accomplished so many things already. And, and, and those things are the things that, that's going to, like you solved a problem, like you did something amazing when you were 12 years old. That's still part and parcel of who you are today. And that's what you're going to take to, to solve that research project and, and really like dominate and, 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 and be successful. So don't just look, just remember how far you've already come. And, and there's a lot that you have accomplished already. And, and this next thing that you're doing is just the next set of experiences that you'll, you'll come by. That is so insightful. Yeah. I, I feel so at ease with myself now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much for sharing that, Sarianne. That was really honest and that was so wholesome. Thank you. Bunny, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I think I think what Dr. Oud and Serena said, I think are very, very relevant. I'd just like to add one more thing. Sometimes when you're faced with a situation where you think that you're not good enough, and, and that's a very common thing, we have to also learn to trust the process. And this is something that I learned during my, uh, when I was doing my, when I went on my IVLP tour in uh, 2013, or oh, sorry, 2010. They, they, you know, I learned that sometimes, you know, if, if someone is recommending, you know, a supervisor is, is suggesting that you do something or someone in, someone whom you report to or someone higher than you is suggesting that you take on a bigger role maybe they see something in you that you don't see yourself and in those cases trust the process and go with the flow because if you don't trust yourself sometimes it's good to trust other people that they have the judgment and and if you do it and you're not happy with it you still have the option of backing out but if you don't do it 
you'll forever be thinking, could I have done that? And I don't think you should live a life of regrets. Mm -hmm. All right. You know? yeah. Sometimes it's, it's good to just jump in and see, see where that goes and trust the process. I think that's, a, that's, that's, that, that's the, yeah, mm -hmm. good trust the process. That's a great takeaway. I'm literally jotting it down because I'm literally <laughs> saying dwell into the process right now. Okay. Thank you so much, um, everyone, to all the panelists. Yeah. We've almost run out of time now. So, yeah, we'd like to really, really thank you all for sharing and being so open and sharing your personal experiences. And, and this has been such a great sharing session. And we really hope that the people who have been tuning in have gotten some really great tips on and some great takeaways from this conversation. Um, thank you again, uh, Dr. Un, Bani, and Serena for your time. Serena, so, do you have anything to add? Yeah, yeah. I, anybody I, else I, have any? I wanted to share again, um, because there's one of the questions that talks about what are the resistant, resistance points. Yeah. I think that, you know, um, everybody on this call should recognize that it's still early days. There's still so much that needs to happen. And we're still coming up with, with all these issues. We're gonna to need to break barriers, et cetera, et cetera. There will be resistance. There will be days, you know, the, 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 there, there will be people that, that will come and not want you to succeed uh, uh, because they feel threatened by the fact that, you know, now you're at the table. You didn't used to be at the STEM table. Now you're at the STEM table. You're not at the leadership table. So my advice, everybody, is just stay strong, ignore them. And, and, and so, so we've all come so far. There's so much more to go. Ignore the critics. There will always be critics. Um, and and um, let's seize all the opportunities that, that's available. Yeah. So, I so agree with that. Really great. Nobody can hurt you without your consent. Right. <laughs> I agree. Fantastic. I think one of the best things that I got out from the session is that from Serena, Vani and Dr. Un is that quite frankly, I think each of us have the opportunity to be the leader that we sort of wish we had mm. and lead the way, you know, be, be the change that you want to see. And that's really, really insightful. You know, truly, there are much more to take away from this session. And really, thank you so much to our panelists and everything that you bring to the table. Always a pleasure speaking to each of you.